The good job in this sangha, there's lots of you because the heating's just stopped working. So, within the collective body warmth, will stay relatively warm. If you need extra blankets, there in the back corner, or you know, sit closer to somebody or something. So, as the when the Buddha was teaching. He created, or I'm not sure if creates the right word, but formulated this idea of being there being three central jewels, gems, cornerstones of the Buddhist world. Three things to go to take refuge in in this, and all the things that we can take refuge in in this world. We. He made three things very central to to one's spiritual life, spiritual practice. And those three jewels, as many of you know, uh, the jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma or the truth, the teachings, practices, and the Sangha, the spiritual community. So this evening what I want to talk about is the Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. So we're more familiar with the first two, right? We're familiar with the Buddha, taking refuge in this idea of awakening, to be awake. The historical Buddha is a person who through his practice and efforts, attained enlightenment and taught for decades of his life and began this whole uh, vast teaching and tradition. And the Dharma is the teachings that he gave, teachings, practices, the way, really, to understand our human predicament, how to find the causes of happiness, the causes of suffering, how to free ourselves from suffering. So... um, that all makes a lot of sense to take refuge in. The third jewel, the the jewel of Sangha, is not necessarily so obvious or paramount in people's experience, especially initially as we we join, as we start practicing. Maybe some of you are inspired by the life of the Buddha or what he taught, um, but maybe have less contact with this idea of the, the spiritual community. And why would I want to take refuge in that? So that's what I want to speak to tonight. So just by reflecting on your own experience here tonight, there's a reason why we come to these kind of events, these kind of gatherings. And it's not just to receive the teaching, but to be in the gathering, in in the community, in in this sort of field that gets created here. How many of you, if you said... Well, I'm going to go to the Monday night thing, but I'm going to do it at my house. Right? How many of you would meditate for 40 minutes and then you know, take a pee break and then uh, listen to a Dharma talk? Yeah. Probably not so many. And what would the quality of that experience be? Maybe it would be fine. Maybe it would be great. Maybe it would be very distracted. Maybe you'll you know, start for okay, 40 minutes. Okay, I'm going to sit with them at Monday night, Spirit Rock. 
15 minutes. Wow, it's, I don't know, it's kind of getting late already. I think I should, you know, call it a night. Right? You know how that goes. So, um, and there's, we also come together because uh, the, the Dharma is considered, the, he called the Dharma swimming against the stream. We're going against the stream of mainstream culture. Even back then, 2,600 years ago, these teachings are going against mainstream culture, and it's even more so now. It's clearly that these teachings of awakening, of compassion, of clarity, of presence, of renunciation, of freedom, is not on ABC this evening, you know, or CNN, or wherever you get your you know, media input from. You know, it's not part of um, the fabric of what we're used to, right? Certainly not what I've been used to. So, um, so there's an invaluable support that, that comes, that gets created in these, in these meetings, these gatherings. And so I partly want to speak to this idea of support, what it means to, to have support, to feel support, to be supported, and also to be a support for each other. Your presence here supports everybody else. So it's this beautiful reciprocity we engage in when we engage in community. Right, it's not just what I can get out of it, even though we may come with that, but also we contribute by our presence, by our practice, by our intentionality. So this is um, part of an interview um, from Pema Jones, who at the time was a 13-year-old Tibetan lama, who was Tibetan, who was, um, came to the States at a young age. And uh, it speaks a little to this idea of support or the lack of support. So the interviewer says, It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? Pema Jones, It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers, and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. (laughs) (laughs) The kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get distant enough just as it is being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. So how do you deal with people trying to run to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends where my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. i got to live here with my own karma. Some skinner doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants a stump on my head. You mean you're in a gang? Well, yeah, it's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own, but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns and we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> so there's, you know, you see the... The, we, we, we do create community, we do create sangha in any way that we can to get the support that we need. It's a very different kind of support than you imagine a Tibetan Lama needing. So he finishes by saying, so if you can cool things down as a Lama, why, don't, why do you need to be in a gang? Well, it's a samsara and nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can tell myself that he doesn't really exist separate from me. You know, it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he stops talking, and starts beating on me. You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, 
and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anybody. Don't you see any contradictions in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Pema Jones laughing. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards surrounding him whenever, whenever he's traveling. What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate move on him? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so, um, back to Sangha. <laughs> so, when I started practicing, I was in London. It was um, in the early 80s. And punk rock was really in its full heyday. And so being a young student, I was a punk rocker and had a white mohawk and crazy wild <laughs> clothes and makeup and just, you know, was pushing the edge a little as you do when you're, you know, at college. And, and but I, I was also an unhappy punk as, and I uh, was looking for something, you know, and I thought it was in punk. I didn't find it in punk and explored all kinds of things and stumbled across the Dharma because um, actually I was squatting this house. Uh, squatting was legal now. You take over a house that's empty and you live in it for free and, it's, and you have a great time. And um, it happened to be owned by a Buddhist co-op, community, housing thing. And so I got to know these Buddhists and they introduced me to meditation and um, I connected with this, with this one particular uh, Scottish man called Sangapala, which in his, the Sangapala means protector of the, of the Sangha, of the community. And he really lived up to his name because I, I was pretty out there and wayward and confused and angry and, um, you know, and like punk meets Dharma like it in the back. You know, there was no Dharma punks then. It was just, you know, it was this London, East End, rundown. And, um, and I was trying to sort of mesh my own experience, my suffering with this ancient Buddhist thing that I didn't quite get, but I kind of liked the people in it. And he, helped, he really helped me steady and kind of settle into this practice and this teaching and community and was a really great support for many years uh, in my practice. So I, it was my first taste of what, of what Sangha can be, which is this, really for me, the, the essence of Sangha is spiritual friendship. You know, Sangha is a community that the glue is the friendship and the connections that we make between each other and the way we, that we support each other. And if I look back on my past 25 years or so of practice, every step of the way has been supported and held by spiritual friends. You know, I've mentors, friends, teachers, peers, that's all sort of contained in this idea of, of, of Sangha, of spiritual community, where um, I would have gone way off the rails and probably stopped practicing many times as it gets hard, as it gets difficult, as it gets confusing, as life gets overwhelming, as we get busy, as we get distracted by things. Had I not had this sort of base of friends and community, I don't know where. I can't imagine I'd be sitting up here today for that. So, um, yeah, I remember this. Uh, I was thinking about my early days in practice today because of the cold. We used to, I, used to, I, I moved to this, this meditation community in the country in, in Norfolk in England. And we all lived in little trailers around this uh, vegetable garden out in, this, out in the country and... And we would get up at 
some ridiculous time in the morning to meditate. Buddhists like to get up early for some reason to meditate. And, um, and I would, I, there's no way, it was, it was way colder than this, and we're in this trailer with no heat, and we'd get up and, you know, breath was, you know, this misty breath because it was icy cold. And there's no way I would have gone there and sat every morning, you know, by myself for years. But with these friends who were getting up and ringing the bells and, you know, sitting together, this really delightful sense of we're in this together and we're learning and we're growing and we're practicing. And it wasn't necessarily easy all the time, but it was the sense of um, being buoyed by this, by that camaraderie. So, um, so this, this sense of sangha um, can be many things. It can be a source of inspiration. So traditionally, the, the sangha is, well, there's two different ways of, of describing the sangha, but there's the fourfold sangha, which is the community of the monks and nuns and lay women and lay men. And often in Asia, it's, it's the, the sangha is thought of either as, either as the monastic sangha or the Arya sangha, which is the enlightened ones. So the Arya sangha, the, those who have practiced this, these, these teachings and attained some kind of realization uh, is one of the sources of our inspiration, just like the Buddha is part of the Arya Sangha. Um, again, looking at my own practice, I've seen that what's really fired me is by meeting and connecting with and listening to and studying with great teachers, because great teachers embody the teachings by through their own practice. And so <clears throat> it's really a vital part into you know, the... Buddhism and, and um, most wisdom traditions uh, are really uh, transmission lineages in the sense that the, the lineage is kept alive through teacher-student relationships. And there's something very different, as you know, um, you, could, you could listen to this talk online or you can get it transcribed somewhere and read it in a book somewhere, right? And it's very different when you, you know, if you went, if I said, well, you could go home and read a chapter about the Sangha in some so-and-so's book, or you can listen to the talk. It's a very different experience when we have a live contact with a teacher. And there's something comes through the, 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 the lineage, actually, through the, the, something through their personal connection. And so um, there's something very vital and alive about this living Sangha that we, that we have. You know, and it's really a great blessing where we live and uh, the time that we live. You know, like the fact that you have access to someone like Spirit Rock and probably 20 other Buddhist centers that are within driving distance uh, of your house. And to have this, it's really an abundance of spiritual community and spiritual teaching and teachers. And to not underestimate the, the, the value of that and the, to make use of it, you know, it's really, really is a blessing. So um, so we have the inspiration that can come from the Sangha. We have the clarification that can come through, through access to teachers and teachings. There's a, a line that I remembered from um, Stephen Batchelor, who is a great, great teacher and now lives in France. And he said, he was talking about insight. He said, an insight doesn't fully flower, isn't fully complete. I'm paraphrasing here until it's actually uh, spoken in words. And I found that a very interesting sort of facet of this piece of sangha, that we, 
that there's that we have these insights, we have these breakthroughs, we have these moments of clarity and wisdom, and it's something about it, it doesn't fully come into fruition until we actually share it, communicate it, articulate it, explore it, inquire into it with ourselves and with it, particularly with another person. Um, and again, that speaks to the importance of sangha in the sense of. Um, being around like-minded people who understand what it is you're trying to do or you're trying to explore. You know, I'm sure there's many people in life you could talk about the deepest, profoundest insights in your meditation. They go, that's kind of weird. <laughs> what planet did you just land on, land in from? You know, so it's very easy to, to um, have the preciousness of our experience and, and realization or insights uh, dismissed or written off as some kind of navel-gazing cuckoo land, right? You ever had that experience? I've had it plenty. And and how different that experience is when you when you do have some friend or somebody where you can share that experience and it gets mirrored, it gets seen, it gets validated, and there's actually a deepening can happen in that in that meeting in that inquiry. So another thing, sense, another thing that I notice in this, this, this in, the, in, this, in Sankhar is um, the sense of belonging that can happen, a sense of um, uh, uh, what, what I what I see a lot in this in in this culture is is often the lack of belonging, a lack of feeling like I'm at home anywhere, and um, I know a lot of my friends felt that for the longest time, that they were sort of aliens, you know, adrift in this culture that seemed to not make any sense to anybody. And then when we find a community where we actually share those values and meanings and intentions, it really creates a powerful sense of belonging, which is very rooting, very grounding. So I want to read something from Anjali Zarian, who wrote... um, um, this piece called Lessons from... Geese. I can say lessons from Greece. Lessons from geese. Um, Andrew Zarin is a beautiful teacher. She studied many of the indigenous cultures around the world and was able to synthesize those teachings into profound uh, wisdom. So she's talking about different things that she's learned about geese flying in formation and how that speaks to our human experience. So, and you'll see, you know, this is time of year when we start to see the, the geese migrating. Fact number one. As each goose flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the birds that follow. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds 72% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. Then the lesson. People who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they are going quicker and easier because they are traveling on the thrust of one another. Fact number two, when a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of flying alone. It quickly moves back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. And the lesson, if we have as much sense as a goose, we stay in formation with those headed where we want to go. We are willing to accept their help and give our help to others. So when when she says formation, it's not like we're in the military here. Um, but we, we, have, we, we trust that there's a wisdom in a certain direction. Um, and I've had the experience of, of leaving Sangha for various reasons. When I, when I left England, I, I left a, a Sangha of seven years 
and I had that experience of feeling alone and uh, the sense of a drift, a sense of drifting happened until I was able to reconnect with another community that was that was uh, sort of in alignment with where I was at that time. Fact number three, when the lead goose tires, it rotates back into the formation and another goose flies to the point position. And the lesson, it pays to take turns doing the hard tasks and sharing leadership. As with geese, people are interdependent on each other's skills, capabilities, and unique arrangement of gifts, talents, and resources. Fact four, the geese flying in formation honk to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. You wonder why they're doing all that honking up there. We need to make sure our honking is encouraging, she says. <laughs> Not just, come on already, you slackers. In groups where there is encouragement, the production is much greater. The power of encouragement to stand by one's heart or core values and encourage the heart and core of another is the quality of honking that we seek and that we need on the path. So it's a teaching in wise speech. One of the... The glues of, of, of a community is how we speak to each other, how we relate to each other. You know, and there's a lot of guidance from, from these teachings about how to speak wisely. Lastly, fact five, when a goose gets sick, wounded, or shut down, shot down, two geese drop out of formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with it until it dies or is able to fly again. Then they launch out with another formation to catch up with the flock. And the lesson is, if we had as much sense as geese, we will stand by each other in difficult times as well as when we are strong. And again, another beautiful part of being in community is we can look out for each other, we can take care of each other. And one of the things I say when I do my wilderness retreats, which are a little different than retreats that we do here in the sense that we're, we're out um, alone somewhere and away from, as far away from civilization as possible, and... Um, the, even though the retreats are in silence and there's somewhat of an inward focus, there's also a need to, t- to look out for each other because that's, that's all we have. So there's, I really encourage people to really take care of each other and, and really be alert to what, what's happening when we're hiking or kayaking or whatever we're doing. And there's this beautiful sense of uh, community and care gets built up in this, in this silent field. So the Buddha said, um, if you're going to be around people, be around wise people. Because we're affecting this idea, this, going back to this idea of mirror neurons, that we, that we affect and reflect that which is in our field. And um, to be, he, was, he, he spoke a lot about um, keeping company of the wise. And he said, if you can't find any wise people, then be alone. <laughs> <laughs> So it's an interesting uh, invitation to seek company of the wise. I, I, um, I really take him seriously on that one. I seek out the company of wise people because it's, it's a way that we learn, a way that, that we grow, you know, a way that we get inspired. You know, I was very um, uh, inspired by my first teacher, Sangharakshita, who was an English monk, one of the earliest monks, Western monks in, in Asia in the 40s, I think, after the Second World War. 50s and 60s. And um, he was um, 
just profound to watch. Just the way he moved, he was so mindful. Like watching Thich Nhat Hanh, if you ever watched Thich Nhat Hanh, he just moved so impeccably. Um, it was just it was just inspiring to see him walk down the down the corridor of the building that we lived in, um, and then to hear him teach and to hear and to listen to his teachings and. Um, so to keep company of the wise, seek out company of the wise. And it's why the, in this tradition we've created so many opportunities for people to come together in terms of practice and sitting groups and classes and courses and retreats and, and, and things to, to, to keep this sense of community alive, the sense of Sangha alive. So I want to read something from the texts um, about about how we can practice together. These are, these are monks, so they obviously don't have to go you know, to work at nine in the morning, so it's a little different, but you can get a little feel for this, um, the quality of uh, practicing in community. So um, the, 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 the Buddha's asking, there's this, this three monks, they're meditating in a, in a, in a, in a, in a grove alone, in silence, and they've been practicing for some time, and they've, de- they've developed a reputation for having a great uh, harmony. And one of the main the main monk is called Anuruddha. So the Buddha asks Anuruddha, well, how, "How's it going?" He didn't quite say that, but he said something like that, you know. Um, and Anuruddha says, "Surely, venerable sir, we are living in concord. Venerable sir, is the Buddha. We are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disruption." blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. What a beautiful way, beautiful expression. I wonder how many of you at work view each other with kindly eyes. <laughs> but Anuruddha, how do you live like this? Venerable sir, as to that, I think thus. It is, gain, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them both openly and privately. I consider why should I not wish to do, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones want to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. And he goes on to ask him, so how do you, how, how else do you, do you keep this Great thing going. And he says, Venerable Sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, whichever of us returns last, eats the food left over, otherwise he throws it away where there is no greenery or drops of drops into water where there's no life. He puts away the seats and the walk the water for drinking and washing. He puts away the refuse bucket, he sweeps out the dining room. Whoever notices the pots or water for drinking or washing or the latrine are low, he empties them, takes care of them. If they are heavy for them, he calls his friends to help him. Every five days or so, we sit together all night discussing the Dharma. This is how we abide diligently, ardently, and resolute. So um, I love this idea of living with companions, with looking at each other with kindly eyes and Cultivating these acts of loving kindness through our through our actions, through our speech, and through our mind, privately and and publicly, that that's the that's the the um, 
the fluid, the, the connection that, that connects them, that binds them. So I think take that as a beautiful metaphor for how we might live our lives. And you might think about places that you that you work or live, family, friends. What would it be like to live to to bring in some of that quality of loving kindness? He also once said, as as many of you know, when when his trusty uh, trusted um, uh, attendant Ananda asked him, he was getting very excited about understanding how important this this idea of spiritual friendship is in practice. And then and, and he said to the boy, he said, "Oh, venerable one, um, I now see that the spiritual friendship is is really is really half of the spiritual life. It's so important." And the Buddha said, "No, no, 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 you got it wrong again." as he often did. No, it's the whole of the spiritual life. Spiritual friendship, this idea of extending this sense of friendliness and kindness, it's really the whole of spiritual life. But if it's not that, then what is it? If it doesn't manifest in our lives, in our relationships, as kindness, as care, as, as, as attention, then what are we doing? So... If if this if these qualities and these these values that come from from the sangha are so important, <clears throat> why why is it not so paramount in our experience? You know, I know for a lot of people when they take refuge, the, the Buddha and the Dharma, as I said earlier, are, are really much more strongly motivating than this idea of sangha. And my sense is because it's easier to love and appreciate the Buddha and the Dharma. But it's harder to appreciate and love everybody else. Have you noticed? <laughs> All those other people, these difficult, problematic people around us, share us the same last name. <laughs> and others. So you know, it's because the, the place of, of, of Sangha, of community, of where we live, the people that we live, the... the, the being in wise relationship is really challenging. It's where, it's where actually the fruit and where the nitty-gritty of understanding what the Buddha is, understanding what it means to be a Buddha, to live with wakefulness, to, uh, to metabolize and integrate the teachings, happens in the context of relationship, in the context of your everyday life with your spouse and kids and parents and, and colleagues, right? It happens, where, where do you experience the most rub, the most, most conflict, the most challenges? How many people is in relationship with somebody or someone or group of people? The greatest challenges in life. Hands up? <coughs> most people. You know, we also have great challenges with ourselves. You know, the, being, in, being in, in sangha with ourselves, being in community with ourselves can also be very challenging. But it's the place, you know, in, in our relationships... In, in our interactions, wherever it may be, whether it's in this sort of more limited sense of, of sangha, community, or in the broader sense of community that we live in, is where we, we get most challenged. So then I want to speak to that. This is from Swami Chidananda. People are unreasonable and illogical and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish and ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. 
Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. So there it is. You know, it's not easy being around six billion other beings, right? It's where these, where all these these practices get put to the test. You know, is how, how easy. You know, I, I often think that the most challenging place to stay mindful, to be stay present, is where, when we're in relationship, when we're in communication, when we're in dialogue, when we're in conflict, right? Maybe maybe relatively workable, sitting on our mat. Right? or driving our car, or taking a shower or something. But when we get into talking, and animated discussion, heated discussion, conflictual discussion, people taking positions, feeling defensive or reactive, how easy is it then to stay present, to stay grounded, to stay centered, to stay in our, in our, in our hearts? Right? So I want to speak a little to how some of the teachings uh, interact or weave in with, with this idea of Community. So, just for instance, taking the idea of um, the Brahma Viharas, these um, boundless qualities of the heart that the Buddha talked about, the qualities of love, of compassion, of appreciative joy, of other people's happiness, equanimity. You know, we don't we don't practice these in isolation. We may we med- we may cultivate them in meditation, right? We may do these phrases: loving kindness, may I be well, may you be happy, may we be free of suffering. But the point isn't that isn't to be a good meta meditator on the cushion, right? The point is to bring that into our lives, into the world, into our interactions. Not so easy. We might be able to feel boundless love for all beings everywhere in all time, in all space, right? And as soon as we get out of our meditation and uh, you know, neighbors got the rock and roll music on loud, we suddenly in contraction or our spouses on our case because we haven't taken the trash out or whatever it is. How easy it is, how, how challenging it is to maintain that open-heartedness. So again, being remembering this, this time back in my first sort of monastic situation in the country, um, we had a, 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 fr- a good friend of the, the founding teacher, um, who was a, probably the most difficult person I've ever met in my life, um, lived with us very intimately as a very small group of people living in this land. And um, I, every single day, wanted him to get kicked out of the out of the community because he was such a difficult, angry, rageful, scary piece of work. And I, I couldn't understand why my teacher would like this guy hanging out in the community. And then I, I heard about that the story about Gurdjieff um, that some of you I'm sure have heard from Jack, um, who had a very very similar difficult person in the community. And everybody hated him, and finally he left, and everyone was so happy. Um, and Gurdjieff was mortified and got on a train and traveled quite a great distance, apparently, um, and <coughs> pleaded for him to come back. Didn't want to come back, pleaded, paid him to come back, brought him back, came back into the community. People were horrified that this horrible, difficult, challenging person was back. And Gurdjieff brought him back because that's, that's where we do our work. That's how we grow in those difficult, challenging relationships. So I guess that was why my teacher was doing keeping this person there. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe you're sitting in meditation here 
and you came for this very sweet, quiet. It actually happened to me the other day. I was, I was happening on Sunday. I was, I was doing some meditation, and this person uh, kept falling asleep on me. <laughs> he was so tired. He kept falling into me, and I sort of, you know, was hoping for a quiet meditation, and you know, wasn't expecting someone to be landing on my lap every three and a half minutes, and then I move him off onto his chair, go back into sitting, and all of a sudden, <laughs> move him back. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you start talking to me, apologizing. and So we have, you know, we come with these expectations of bliss and emptiness and light and love, and, you know, maybe we're sitting next to the world's heaviest breather. You know, we want to kill them. You know? Even though we're wishing loving kindness to everybody else, we want this person personally to just disappear, you know. So it's challenging it's to, to be in this human body and, and have a heart and have senses and be sensitive and get tired and reactive. And, and that's what we work with. That's, how, that's why we practice. And the same when we, when we, when we develop the qualities of compassion. You know, and what, what these, these qualities, these ideals that we practice, they basically become mirrors to see all the places where, we, where we're not living in that way. You know, when, when we hear about the this idea of compassionate heart, of, of, of feeling opening to the suffering of the world. You know, it sounds like a great idea, you know, except it's challenging because when we open to the suffering while well, we feel our own suffering, we may feel overwhelmed, we, we react because we can't deal with our own suffering, let alone even anybody else's. Right. There's a story... One of my favorite stories from the text of the Buddha uh, speaking about suffering. He was um, he'd heard about somebody in his in, in, in one of his monks was sick with dysentery, um, which is not an uncommon experience in India. I found out, and um, so he'd heard he was so he went to visit him and he found that he wasn't being taken care of. He was really sick and really weak and uh, had soiled himself and this his bed was a mess and. And the Buddha was horrified that the, the monks hadn't been taking care of him. And so he, you know, he took care of him, bathed him in, in clean robes and all of that, and um, admonished the monks uh, for saying, look, you know, we, you know, you've taken refuge, you've left behind your worldly life and your family life, and you've, you've gone for refuge to this community, and so we need to look after each other, need to take care of each other, need to open your hearts to each other and really look after each other. So it's the same for us, you know. How do we extend ourselves when people are sick, when people are ailing, when people need us, when people are hurting? <coughs> or the same with this quality of, of mudita, of appreciative joy. This is a, a common one I notice in, 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 the, in the spiritual community where um, um, somebody may be having a lot of um, spiritual attainment or experiences or ecstasy or bliss or having really delicious meditation. You, when you walk in and you know someone's been sitting here since six o'clock, you know, and they're super, you know, just radiant and loving kindness and bliss is, is just pouring out of them. And you go, ooh, God damn it. I want some of that. I hope they get bored soon. It's making me feel really uncomfortable. I look so happy. You know, we sort of cringe when we hear about someone's great insights or great awakening, you know. Like, damn, there's going to be less for me. There's only so much enlightenment to go around, you know. 
damn, they got there first. I hate them. I hate them. So even the teachings of the Eightfold Path, you know, a lot of the Eightfold Path is about wise relationship in the world, wise intention. How do we bring an intention that's kind, that's loving, rather than cruel and greedy? The practice of um, wise action. How do we live ethically in the world? How do we, you know, we, the, the, the spiritual community that we live in is a, um, a container, is a, is a place to practice these things, you know. As an, as an easier place, as a greater ground of understanding to, to know what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing. The practice of wise speech is also something that is a valuable part of our practice. You know, it's, again, it's one of those, those connectors that, 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 that can make or break a spiritual community. You know? How do we talk to each other? How do we talk? How do we... Does our, does our speech, speech, just like the Buddha was saying, create harmony? Or does it create divisiveness with our gossip and our backbiting and our jealousy? And so there's, this is um, some advice from Ryokan, who was a, a Zen monk and a hermit. And for some reason, even though he was a hermit, had quite a lot to say about uh, wise speech. Um, I mean, he would hang out with the villagers and play, you know, with the kids and stuff, and so maybe he learned something. Um, but his list is very interesting. Um, maybe he became a hermit because he got tired of people talking in ways he didn't think were so skillful. Um, th- and this is called My Precepts, My Talking Precepts. Take care not to, and there's a long list, take care not to talk too much, talk too fast, talk without being asked to, Talk gratuitously. Talk with your hands. Not quite sure why that's in there. Talk about worldly affairs. Talk back rudely. Argue. Smile condescendingly at others' words. Use elegant expressions. This is not to. Not to boast. Avoid speaking directly. Speak, speak with a knowing air. Jump from topic to topic. Use fancy words. Speak ill of others. Speak grandly of enlightenment. Carry on while drunk. Speak in an obnoxious manner. <laughs> Yell at children, make up fantastic stories, speak while angry, name drop, ignore the people to whom you are speaking, speak sanctimoniously of gods and Buddhas, use sugary speech, use flattering speech, speak of things of which you have no idea, (laughs) monopolize the conversation, talk about others behind their backs, speak with conceit, badmouth others, chant prayers ostentatiously, complain about the giving of alms, about the amount of arms and giving long-winded sermons. <laughs> Oops, I better shut up. <laughs> Not a great list. It's just about you know if we you know follow that list, we wouldn't say very much. <laughs> so um, I could say more, but since he told people not to give long sermons, I'm gonna. I actually want to hear from you folks since we're here. We are in community. Um, Just like just one last piece, which is about you know the the, the, the wise action, you know the the, the practice of, of um, ethical guidelines that the Buddha laid down. I think are also an essential fabric of community, not to to live without harming, to live 
uh, kindly, to live generously, to live without harming others through our sexuality, to, to live speaking truthfully without intoxicating ourselves so we become uh, unclear. So many, many, many aspects of community and sangha. And um, there are a couple of things I want to say. <laughs> Or one last thing, actually, which is um, the, the, the value of, of spiritual community, of like-minded people. One of the central things, I think, that, the, that happens here is it's a place that we can be ourselves. It's a place that we can be real. It's a place that we can be authentic. And part of waking up is to be authentic, is to, be, is to know the truth of who we are and to express that truth. And the shadow of being in a community is, is the shadow of conformity. That, that, or, and and, and the, the deep shadow of conformity becomes cultish. And as you know, many spiritual communities have deteriorated into cults, even though they may start off with great intentions. And I've had the, the experience of being around some that was not so pleasant. Um, and to... Um, and to understand the difference between being authentic and being real and, and, and trusting and taking refuge in, in Sangha as a, as, a, as a value, and yet not to blindly conform to the norms in, in where you uh, lose yourself in a way that's, that's unhealthy, where you stop listening to your own authenticity. So I'd like to open this up to um, comments and um, mostly really questions. The questions I want to ask you, and you can just reflect on these, and if anybody wants to say something, they can. What does Sangha mean to you? Do you make use of it? Has it supported you? Has it supported you? What have you received? And what is your relationship to Sangha? Is it a refuge? Is it a jewel? Maybe it's a new concept, and you're just kind of checking it out, what this thing is. Does Sangha mean cult, or does it mean a really cool group of people that I want to get to know? Anybody like to, to share? Maybe we can use the, the mic, if that works. Or questions, comments, reflections? Don't all jump at once. I'm not, sorry, I don't know if you can hear me. I find the silence is really wonderful, but I find that um, it's really challenging to connect on a more personal level with people. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that or if it just takes time. Like in a class or in, just in general in this, in this culture here? Yeah, just in general, I would say. I mean, when I, it, it, was, it was really bittersweet when I just did a, a five-day retreat because... One of the women said, "My gosh, these are the most wonderful people, and I'll never see them again." Mm. And it was really, it was really poignant. And mm-hmm. I think there's, I, I have that feeling, and I don't know if it's also sort of California life. And I'd lived in a, in a more rural area where people were saw each other more, and we're just so much busier here and going mm-hmm. in so many directions. But mm-hmm. I just, I wonder if other people might be struggling with that as well. Yeah, just no, it's a good, it's a good question. You know this. This is a relatively, you know, the, the, the 
the, an important part of this practice is the silent practice. You know, silence is a very powerful feature of this community, more so than, than, than other Buddhist communities. And there's a beautiful side to that, and as you say, there's a, there's a, there's a downside to that, which is there, is there are less points of contact to connect. And so the relationship piece um, may not be so fully available because of the silence, because we're not hanging out. And so, um, you know, it's something that we're looking at. You know, that's partly why we have these kind of meetings where there is more chance to connect and talk and meet. And it's it's sort of the pros and cons of having that form. It's it's a form. It's just a form, but it um, there are, there are less ways to connect. Yeah. But I encourage you to make use of the other forms that, that aren't so silent. Other comments, reflections? What, is, what does Sangha mean to you? Yes, please. I had a wonderful experience with Sangha um, having had a major 14-hour back operation and being in the hospital for five months, no longer Abigail, but five other personas. And coming out from that, my sangha, it's a spirit rock sangha, but mostly it's around Philip Moffat's Sunday night, um, was just magical. Although I didn't know until much later, many, 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 more than half, more than three quarters of the folks in that sangha came to see me in the hospital, listened to these five different persona that I wish that I'd had a journal, actually, of them. Um, and then drove me around, did almost everything that they could. And I think that even after all these years of DPP and Jack and all that, that there was something about that, about that caretaking without without having to ask and without feeling like I'd already given back, although I probably had, was such a magical and holy experience that the whole word or that small word, sangha, now means more to me than it ever did before. Mm. <coughs> Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, that's a beautiful expression. Um, when you're talking about surrounding yourself with wise people and, uh, and like the, the wanting to be in community and sometimes you can choose a community that may not be so helpful in a lot of ways. But I remember um, when I was young and I wanted to be a peace activist and I went out to the Nevada test site and, and uh, there was all these protests out there and people were living kind of at the gates of the Nevada test site, which is like the most bombed place on earth. Like over 1200 nuclear bombs have gone off there. Mm. And, um, and so we were at peace camp and it was all of these people who were like, we're really peaceful and we're these awesome people. And everyone was fighting and, <laughs> and being really bitter and nasty to each other. And there were knife fights and, um, it was, it was, uh, anyway, it, it, it was really intense and, you know, I still have some, some friends from back in that time, but it is really important to pick your sanghas wisely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Say about it. 
<laughs> you know, I think that's the uh, one of the strengths of the of, of the, the the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma Sangha, is it has practices. You know, a lot of there's a lot of great communities out there, but they may not have practices that teach people how to live together in harmony and how to take care of each other and how to practice with their own reactive minds and their own hatred and aversion. So it's a great blessing to have that. And you see what happens when, you know, good intention, you know, it's a great intention to try and stop the bombing. And just, you know, I've been on many peace rallies where it's been very aggressive and angry and violent and, and um, not embodying that which it's wanting to bring into the world. Yeah. Right. So then in contrary, I would say that what Sangha would mean to me is that people that actually embody what they preach or what mm-hmm. they talk about. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Spirit Rock, I've been coming here about a year, and the first night I came here, I was surrounded by seven or eight people that I knew all, you know, beaming good intentions and love at me. And so from that moment on, I knew this was my new family. And I, I, this is one of the most important things in my week that I come every week because it, it feels so good. I just, just coming up the front steps, I feel, I just feel relief. I just feel like I'm coming home, regardless of whether it's meditation is good or talk is good or whatever. Just being here makes me feel better. So that's kind of a unique perspective, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's another piece to Sangha, which is um, uh, you know when we don't feel part of it, you know, and that can change. You know, a relationship, just like any relationship, changes to a group and to a teaching and to a practice. And um, so I don't want, I don't want to sort of create this Pollyannish field of it's all good and we're all one and we're all community, because that may not be a lot of people's experience here right now. Um, and it's um, I think of it also as a practice as well as an experience. And like any relationship, it takes work and it takes a certain amount of commitment and a certain amount of time and a certain investment of energy and um, exploration. And um, just like anything in the Dharma, it's, there's an encouragement to check it out. Is this real? Is this substantial? Is this true? Is this... Is this, uh, you know, appropriate to my experience? Is this uh, sorry? I say I want to also bring that into the field here that um, it's an exploration and it's not static, and it shouldn't be a particular way, and you shouldn't be having any particular experience or feeling. Um, but there's a, the, you know, you could think of it as a field of potentiality. That there's a lot of potential for support and for care and for kindness and for inspiration. All of those things. And it may not be present right now. Or you may be going through periods where you don't not feel so connected. And you take time to be alone, and that's also fine. You know? Or you find another sangha that's, that's, that speaks more closely to what your needs are. Or maybe you get some of your needs met here, and you get some of your needs met elsewhere. So to, um, you know, to look at it honestly and uh, without some idea of how it should be and how I should be fitting in, or everybody else. You know, a common experience is, well... I still don't feel like I fell in here, you know. 
that they all look like they're a club, and I'm always sitting the one at the back going, yeah, I'm not sure about this club either, and don't feel so included or so welcomed, and um, just I just want to make space for all of that. That's also part of the the um, the sort of moving field of of relationship. You know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm a member of several different communities, and I and I and I w- track how connected and part of and not so part of and disconnected I am in relationship to those communities, um, and. Uh, to listen to that and listen to what's appropriate and what feels true and what uh, what's needed, you know. So, so let's just close with a, a little moment of silence, just feeling again into the field. And we'll close with the chanting of the syllable ah, ah, which is the completion of all words left unsaid, the sound of the universe. So we'll just chant it until it naturally uh, dies out. So, for your attention, your practice. Um, I'll be here next week. I'm thinking next week um, I want to do a sort of more practice, practical uh, uh, teaching around the nuts and bolts of meditation practice and mindfulness. Have a great week. May you find community wherever you go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.